Well, good morning, good morning. Good to see you, most of you again, maybe some of you for the first time, but I don't have that memorized, so I don't know. So, um, so uh, this, is, uh, this is session number three. I mean, they're building on uh, one another. So, you know, in our first time together, uh, we talked about um, the, the need to persevere. And we looked at, we looked at passages in, in Matthew and in John and in Paul and in First uh, Peter and in Revelation and in, and in Hebrews. And really, all those passages said the same thing, that, which is you, you, must, you must endure until the end to be saved. Yeah. Uh, or, or another way to sum it up is this. Jesus said, if, if you deny me, if you deny me, I will deny you. Uh, so, so there's this, and, and what I did, if you weren't here, I read many, many passages that said this, because it's not just an isolated word. We, we, we hear this over and over and over again in the New Testament. But, you, you know, if you're just reading through, you could, you, you could miss it, right? But if you're actually reading through the New Testament, you have these, and they're warnings, right? If you deny me, I will deny you. How does that function? That functions as a warning. You know, he's not saying, he's not saying, you have denied me, so I'll deny you. No, it's an if statement. So an if statement, you have to fulfill the condition for the consequence to follow, right? If you drive 100 miles an hour, you'll get a ticket. But that's, that's, not, a, that's not a declaration, is it? That's a, that's a warning. That's a condition. If you, if you don't drive 100 miles an hour, well, yeah, that's more complicated, right? You might be driving 80, right? <laughs> but, right, at least you, you, if you're driving the speed limit, we can say you won't get a ticket. So... So that that's how the warnings work. They're 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 conditions, and they're and they're they're all over the place in new in the New Testament. And we read we read that first night. We read the five warning passages from Hebrews. So we did that fast. But um, for those of you who weren't there, we're not going to read them again. We don't have time for that. But I just want you to uh, think of the fact that those five warning passages are in chapter two, verses one through four. Chapter 3, really verse 7 through chapter 4, verse 13. That's a very long warning passage, you know, uh, more than a chapter. Chapter 5, verse 11, we, we didn't actually read all of this one either. Through chapter 6, verse 8, another really long warning. Chapter 10, verse uh, 26 through 31. And chapter 12, verses 25 through 29. And I argued that those five warning passages ought to be interpreted synoptically. They ought to be put together. They mutually interpret one another. The, the, the letter of Hebrews is a sermon, and that letter has one point, and if we could sum up that one point, it's this. Don't fall away. Keep, keep clinging to Jesus. Keep trusting in Jesus. Keep, uh, keep hoping in Jesus. Keep obeying Jesus uh, until the end. So that's that's the point of uh, the epistle uh, to the Hebrews. That's, that's the point 
of uh, the warnings. And then, so, we, we, must, we must persevere to the end to be saved. So then last night I asked this question, if we must persevere to the end to be saved, what is perseverance? And I said, look, perseverance, perseverance is not perfection, right? And so we, we looked at six reasons last night why perseverance is, uh, is, is not perfection. And we looked at things like, you know, we, we pray every day uh, for forgiveness. Perfection is ours at the, at, at the resurrection. The, the, the exhortations, the admonitions we see in the New Testament to keep uh, following the Lord show we're not perfect yet. We saw that even, even, even the best Christian best Christians can do better. Uh, we, we saw that, um, that perfection comes on the day of end-time presentation, the day we're presented before God. And then we looked at a couple biographical examples of uh, those who were godly but not perfect. We talked briefly about Zechariah and about Peter. So if, if we have time today, I, I hope to leave some time for questions because we're not having any questions after the morning service uh, unless, you know, you all want to stay till like three or something. Yeah, that, that's not going to happen, right? So maybe, maybe I'll have some time for questions. Kind of the disadvantage is, you know, my final solution is in my morning sermon, right? So today it's a very different kind of sermon. Like I said the first night, if you don't like that kind of sermon, it's not what I usually do when I preach a sermon. Usually I exposit a passage. Really what I'm doing this morning in my sermon is more like another teaching time. But if you don't like it, like I said, I'm leaving, you know? <laughs> Say goodbye, you know? It's, it's very different. I was a pastor for 17 years, and, I was a te- and I've been a teacher for, this is my 39th year. You know, if you're a pastor and a person doesn't like you, that can be difficult, Right? But if you're a teacher, they just don't take you again, right? <laughs> they just say, yeah, I'm, I'm done with that guy. So, um, so, you know, praise God, you're, you're done with me. So, whatever, wherever you are. Okay, so uh, today we're going to talk about per- what another thing perseverance isn't. Perseverance isn't works righteousness, right? We need to persevere to the end to be saved. Well, that, that, sounds, that sounds like... Salvation by works, right? You know, I mean, we need to persevere as that works righteousness. So, so here we go. I want to start by saying this. Obedience is necessary for eternal life. Obedience is necessary for eternal life. I believe that. I'm going to show you that in a minute. It's not optional. It's not, yeah, well... Hopefully we'll be. Not perfect obedience. I talked about that last night, right? Obviously, we're not talking about perfect obedience. But obedience is necessary for eternal life. Therefore, is that obedience works righteousness? What's works righteousness? That you merit, right? You earn salvation by your works, right? That's what works righteousness is. You merit or earn your salvation by what you do. But is obedience necessary to be saved? Some people would say no, but I think the scripture is clear. Listen, listen to Galatians chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. Paul says, For the one who sows to his own flesh 
That's the one who sows to the, the sin principle in us, the one who sows to his own flesh. The, sowing is a picture there of sin, right? The one who sows to his own flesh will from his flesh reap corruption. So reaping is harvest, right? You'll reap corruption, so it's an end time reality. He's not talking about this life, right? But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap what? Eternal life. So, you know, we say, well, what is corruption after all? But it's contrasted with the eternal life, isn't it? So, to receive eternal life, Paul says, you must sow to the Spirit. I conclude from that, obedience, not perfect obedience, but obedience is necessary to receive eternal life. If you sow to your flesh, Paul's writing to Christians, isn't he? If you sow to the flesh in your life, you'll reap what? Corruption. But on the other hand, if you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap eternal life on the last day. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Paul's writing again to believers in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't you know unrighteous people, Paul says, they won't, they, won't, they won't have eternal life. Don't be deceived about that. That's, right? Because people can be deceived. Well, it's, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. I can sow to the flesh and still be saved. No, 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 Paul says, don't be deceived. Then he says, now, now he's not talking about perfection, right? So how, how should we put it? I think he's talking about a, a right direction, an orientation, a pattern in your life, right? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedies, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So he gives a list, right? That is not an exhaustive list. That list is representative. And he says to the Corinthians, and such were some of you. So he's not saying you never committed those sins, right? No, no. You committed those sins, but you've been changed. But you were washed. I think that's a symbol of baptism. In baptism, you were washed. Your sins are cleansed. You were sanctified. I think that's positional sanctification. Have you heard of that? Definitive sanctification. Not progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification, right, is the process by which we become holy. But I don't think in this verse he has progressive sanctification in mind. But, but positional, definitive sanctification that's ours when we're converted. What happened when we were converted? We're washed. We're cleansed of our sins, right? We're put in the realm of the holy and we're justified. What is... So sanctification comes from the language of the temple and the cleanliness, right? You're put in the realm of the holy. Justification comes from the language of the law court. You're declared to be in the right by the divine judge in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So what is Paul saying here? He says, you're new, right? You're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified. Live like it. Live like who you are, right? So... I'll tell you a little story about this text. Uh, one of my favorite uh, preachers uh, when I was young, maybe some of you have heard of him, but it was a long time ago, was from Palo Alto, California. His name was Ray Stedman. Maybe some of you know that name. He was pretty well known. 
uh, Ray Stedman went to Dallas Seminary in, in, in Texas a long time ago. And uh, Ray's church, you know, was right by Stanford University. A lot of, you know, if you, in the late 60s, you know, a lot of the hippie movement, a lot of these young people were coming to his church. It was a very different church, and they had something like a body life where people would get up and share on Sunday nights what the Lord was doing in their life. And anyway... Ray was preaching on this text, and a guy who had just been released from prison came to his church. Ray was preaching on this text, and he read and he read these verses, right? Sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, people who practice homosexuality, so forth and so on. And he says, such were some of you. And Ray said, hey, if you were like that before you were saved, you stand up. Okay, that's interesting, isn't it? He said, Ray said, you stand up. And all over the congregation, people stood up. And the, and, and, and the prisoner looked around, and you know what he said? These are my kind of people, you know? So, these are my kind of people. And it's true, isn't it? It's true, isn't it? You know, we're all sinners. And, you know, he realized, hey, I'm not, this is not a perfect place. There's sinners here but sinners who've been transformed. That's what Paul's talking about. Romans 10, 16. We, we say you must believe in the gospel to be saved. Absolutely right. But did you know Paul can also say, Romans chapter 10, verse 16, but they, he's talking about the Jews in this context, but we can apply it to anyone, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Belief and obedience, they belong together, right? I'll say more about that. Those who believe obey, not, not perfectly, but they do obey. And they obey the gospel. But Romans chapter 15, verse 18, Paul says, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Paul says, this is my mission, to bring the Gentiles to obedience. So they bow the knee to Jesus Christ as Lord. If you confess Jesus as Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But part of what it means to be a believer is to confess him as Lord. James chapter 2. Verse 14, very famous passage. What good is it, my brothers? If someone says, I have faith, but doesn't have works, can that faith save him? No, James says, right? Can that faith save him? If someone says, yeah, I believe, I believe. You know, before I was a Christian, I told you I was raised as a Catholic, but if someone asked me, did Jesus die for your sins? I would have said, yeah, I guess so. That's what I've been told. (laughs) I've heard that, you know. Did I care? I didn't. <laughs> Not really. But if someone said, you know, people, pe- sometimes Protestants would ask me. I went to a public high school with t- 2,200 students. So Protestants would ask me, are you a Christian? And I'd go, yeah, I'm a Catholic. Of course I'm a Christian, right? So, but what, James, what does James say? Can that faith save him? Verse 17, so also faith by itself if it doesn't have works, faith without works is dead. It's not, it's not real faith, right? It's a dead thing. 
Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Faith and works belong together, right? You know, this, this really dates me. You know, the old Frank Sinatra song, some of you know it, right? Love and marriage, love and marriage. Uh, what now? I, I lost it. Love and marriage, love and marriage. Uh, they go together like a horse and carriage, right? Well, let me tell you, brother, you can't have one. You can't have one. Dave will sing it later for us. Uh, you can't have one without the other, right? Well, a lot of people in our culture today want love without marriage, right? But true, we'd say biblically that works, right? True love leads to marriage, right? If, if, a, if, a, if a guy says to a gal, I really love you, you know, but I don't want to marry you, uh, you know, anybody with a Christian worldview says, no, you do not, you do not love her because you're not willing to be committed. Well, faith and works are like that, right? True faith always leads to works, right? If I, if I said to you, in two minutes, this room is going to blow up because um, as your friendly guest speaker, I've planted a bomb right? Which I did not, by the way. But um, if I said that, and if you wanted to live, and you're physically able to get out of this room, and you believed me, you'd leave, right? Your faith would lead to works. Your works don't finally save you, do they? But faith without works makes no sense, right? That's what James is saying. So, So James isn't teaching, finally, we're justified on the basis of our works, is he? But he's saying true faith always leads to works. So, so he says in verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. That's, so just, just intellectually believing something, and now that can be hard, right? If you grow up in a Christian home, you intellectually believe it. But, but are, you really, do you really, are you really believing it? right? Well, one, one, one way we can see that someone really believes is by the change of life, by, by their works. So, so the obedience Paul calls for is an obedience that comes from faith. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says that he has received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So, faith is, faith is the root, right? Obedience is the fruit. You have the root, faith. Faith alone, right? But it's never, Luther said this, right? Faith alone, but it's never faith that's alone. It's an obedience to Christ, bowing to Christ as Lord. It comes from faith. I, I got saved in a public school, in a study hall, in the May of 1971, I don't remember the day. I should have written it down, but I didn't at the time, and I forgot the day. But I was there, and, and, and the Lord, I sensed the Lord in the room. He didn't speak to me orally, but he was speaking to my heart. I was reading the Bible in study hall. Yeah, in those days, the, the 1970s were an interesting time. If you were young, I don't have time to explain it to you. But a lot of people were bringing their Bibles to school. In my, in my school, at least, it wasn't unusual to bring a Bible to school, public school. And um, I just sensed the Lord saying to me, will you give me your whole life, everything? And I was like, 
Will I have to be a missionary? <laughs> Will I have to give up my girlfriend? And that scared me. But I said, you know, Lord, I've seen your beauty. I've seen who you are. I, whatever, whatever you call me to do, I want to be totally, totally yours. I want to belong to you. And that's, you know, that's what happens when we become a Christian, right? We bow the knee to Jesus, it's, and it's an obedience. But why, why did I do that? Because I was trusting him, right? It's an obedience that comes from faith. Uh, Paul says in First Thessalonians 1, 3, remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith, your work that comes from faith, right? You trust God, and therefore you do something. So um, obedience is necessary for salvation, right? But it's the, it's the fruit of faith, right? Faith is, faith is the root. Obedience is the fruit. And, and obedience isn't the ba- This is really important. This is what separates us from Roman Catholics. Obedience is not the basis of our salvation, right? Why not? Because God demands perfection, right? Obedience cannot be the basis of our salvation. So we, we have to be very careful here, right? We can go astray in a number of ways, right? Because Catholics say obedience becomes the basis of your salvation, and I think that's clearly unbiblical. But some Protestants make the mistake of saying obedience doesn't matter at all. But Scripture doesn't say that either. So we've got to be careful. We realize that we live the life we live, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, by the Spirit. We rely on, on, on the Holy Spirit. So, so what, is, what does that look like in our lives? What, you, know, you know, practically, how, do, how does that work out? So, you know, if, if obedience is necessary, do we try really hard? You know, is that what I'm saying? Let's just really grit our teeth. Let's work. Come on, let's work. No, because we're always called upon to believe, right? Because, because faith, faith is that root, right? So, you know, we can just think of various sins that we commit. Let's, let's, say, let's say stealing. Why, why does anybody steal? Well, for maybe a number of reasons, but I think we could say they're not trusting that God will take care of them, right? I got to do it myself. There's no God to take care of me. I got to steal. I got to take it for myself because God won't take care of me at the end of the day, right? Faith is lack of trust is, is the problem. How about sexual sin? How about sexual sin? I can't trust God. I can't trust God for, uh, to give me the joy I need in life. I've got to find pleasure my way, on my terms, according to what I want. So what's, what is that? That's a lack of trust, isn't it? It's a lack of faith, you know? You have an authority, like your parents telling you what to do. You disobey. Why? I, don't, I can't trust that God's really taking care of me and working through my parents. I've got to do it on my own, right? So the, the problem is always, right? The problem is always lack of faith when we sin every time, lack of trust. So, yeah, the works are important, but the works are a symptom, aren't they? Or the lack of works. They're a symptom of what? Not trusting God. Not really relying upon Him. So, 
All that's to say, we don't concentrate on our works. What do we concentrate on? Christ. Because where does faith come from? From looking to him, right? Faith doesn't come from like faith. I want faith. Faith comes from looking at Christ. All his beauty, all his glory, all his power, all, and, and, and being saturated with his love. So we, we don't concentrate on our works, but we look to Christ and to his work on our behalf. Famous uh, Christian from the uh, 19th century, Robert Murray McShane, said, Ten looks to Christ. Do you know the same? Some of you do. Ten looks to Christ for every one look at yourself, right? In other words, we're, our, our eyes should be on Christ. And it depends on the person, who you are. For some people, it's a thousand looks to Christ for every one at yourself. It depends partly on your personality. If you're super introspective, right? You're always kind of condemning yourself. Yeah, Christ, Christ, Christ. But if, you don't, if you're not very introspective, maybe you need to take more looks at yourself too, right? It depends on the person. Those who are damned, those who are unbelievers, they look to themselves and to their own works. So that's not what I'm saying when I'm saying obedience is necessary. I'm not saying, well, yeah, focus on, focus on what, what you do. So, yes, thank you. That, that timer was good. It re- reminded me to look at my watch. So, yeah, I need to, I need to get going here. Especially I'm going to... I have some questions because I, I, I wanted to give you some time to, to say some things. And if you don't have anything to say, then, um, then Dave will come up and sing French, Frank Sinatra. You know, that's, that's what we'll do. So um, uh, I want to say a couple more things about uh, Galatians and Hebrews. So I don't know how well you know those two letters, but both of those letters have a lot of warnings in them. And Galatians, don't receive circumcision, don't. Don't go to the law for your salvation. And in Hebrews, there's all these warnings that we talked about. But here's, here's the interesting thing. In Galatians and Hebrews, what's, what's the antidote? What's the answer to that problem of relying on your works? Both of those letters concentrate what? On the cross, right? So, we're, so what do we put our trust in? You know, we're, or, or, or another way to put it, what's the fuel for, for the trust that leads to obedience? It's focusing on Christ and his cross. So, just a couple verses. Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, he says, Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Or chapter 3, verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has waved a wand over you? How come you're so deceived, right? Who's, who's, uh, who's kind of spun another tale? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. You've forgotten the cross. You've forgotten about Jesus' great love. Galatians 2.21, I don't nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, Christ died for no purpose. What does Paul say to the Galatians again and again? Remember Jesus crucified for you. Jesus crucified and risen, and pray, pray that his love will fill your souls, right? That's, when, 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 when I have doubts, and I do have doubts, we all have doubts, my greatest comfort is always the love of God 
displayed in the cross of Christ. Does God love me? Yes, he does. He gave his son, right? So, so what, the fuel of faith is what? Is, is, is Jesus Christ, crucified, risen. His, his ministry, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And we see the same thing in Hebrews, right? The final, definitive sacrifice is in the cross of Christ. So our righteousness... Yes, obedience is necessary, but our righteousness finally doesn't depend upon ourselves. It's not a basis. Our righteousness is in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. Let me read one other verse, and then I'll tell you a little story about someone. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul says, For our sake, for our sake, God made him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin. So for our sake, God made Christ to be sin, even though Christ knew no sin, even though Christ was sinless, right? So Christ was made sin, but he himself was sinless. For our sake, he did that, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So obedience is necessary, but it's not the basis of our righteousness. The basis of our righteousness is the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, right? The righteousness of Christ is credited to us. The righteousness of Christ is given to us. And we rest in that, don't we, finally? So um, I, I, was, I told you, I'd tell you a little story. This is one of my favorite stories. This story is about J. Gresham Machen. Probably. Anybody in here ever heard of J. Gresham Machen? Yeah, well, yeah, maybe five, to five of you or ten of you, something like that. J. Gresham Machen, I mean, he lived, you know, in the first part of the 20th century, mainly. He was born at the last part of the 19th century. J. Gresham Machen was uh, the founder, I don't know if you've heard of the school, of Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, which was founded in 1929. Machen broke away from the liberal Presbyterian denomination and started a new denomination that still exists today, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And he broke away, he broke away from uh, that denomination because of its liberalism. And, he, and he, wrote, he wrote a lot of great things, but here's a book you could still read today. It's very understandable. Machen's very clear. And the title of the book is Christianity and Liberalism. And, and he's not talking politics, right? He's talking, um, he's talking about liberal Christianity, which doesn't believe in miracles and the resurrection and so forth and so on. And the title tells it all, right? You get it? There's Christianity and there's liberalism. And Machen was courageously saying, whatever those guys are doing, it's not Christianity. <laughs> it's not Christianity. There's Christianity and liberalism. And you read it today and you think, yeah, things haven't changed much, right? There's Christianity and there's liberalism. Beautifully clear. Machen just had one of those razor-clear minds, right? Anyway, that's all prelude to what I wanted to tell you. So in the 1930s, Machen's in his 50s, a relatively young man. He was in the Dakotas ministering. And I don't, I don't know what it was, or if I read, I forgot, but he got sick. And then, you know, 
I think he was like 56, 57. It was evident he was going to die when he was in um, either North or South Dakota. So, so he's, he's, he's dying. Uh, and, and, you know, when you die, right, as Samuel Johnson said, the great uh, person who, you know, did this great English dictionary, death, I love this saying, do you know this saying? Death wonderfully concentrates the mind. Yeah, have you ever heard that one? Yes, it does. Death wonderfully concentrates the mind if you're lucid. You think of what's going to happen next. And so Machen's dying. What did, so what did Machen think about? He had written so many books defending the faith. He had, he had, he had established a, an orthodox, Bible-believing seminary, right? He, he, had, uh, he had ministered entirely on behalf of the gospel. So what did he think of when he was dying? He said to the Lord, I'm so good, right? Let me in. I'm a good guy. That's not what he thought about. You know what he thought about? This is what Satan brings to mind when we're near death. I think typically he thought about his sins. He thought of his failings because he is an ordinary person who also sinned, like all of us, right? And you know what Machen said? He wrote a, he wrote a little note to John Murray, who's also a very famous theologian, and, he, and Machen said, Thank God. Thank God for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. Now, that's kind of technical theological jargon, right? Thank God for the active obedience of Christ. But what are you saying, just to translate it, thank God that the basis of my righteousness is Christ crucified and risen. Thank God that my righteousness is finally not in myself. I don't have any hope if I rely finally on my obedience. So, yeah. Is obedience necessary for perseverance? Absolutely. It's necessary. But it's not the basis, right? The basis is the imputed righteousness of Christ. If there's no obedience in in your life, well, is there any faith? No, there's no faith. But it's not perfect, right? And we have ups and downs in our lives. And we have failures in our lives. So there's no perfect obedience here. The basis of our righteousness is the, the imputed righteousness of Christ that is given to us. So when we're called to persevere, right? When we're called upon to persevere, we're called upon to believe. We're called upon to trust. So again, I don't know how well you know the epistle to the Hebrews, and not all of you were here Friday night. But you know, Hebrews has all those warning passages. But you know what else Hebrews has? Hebrews has that long chapter on faith, right? It's a famous chapter, Hebrews chapter 11. Many of you are very familiar for it. It starts out like this. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then he he just goes through a whole list, doesn't he? He starts with Abel, right? And it's, you know, Abel and Noah and... Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, Ab- and so forth and so on. Who did I miss? Moses and, and so forth. Then he gets to verse 32. And what more shall I say? Yeah, now we're on verse 32, right? For time would fail me. And he says, I have sermons to tell you on Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. 
all the godly who persevered, right? Because Hebrews is all about perseverance, right? All the godly who persevered, persevered because they trusted God. So that call to faith, that call to faith, the call to trust in Hebrews chapter 11, and the call to persevere, they're the same thing, right? Because all obedience comes from faith, right? If you don't obey God, it's not because your salvation is based on your works, right? Salvation isn't based on our works. But if you're not obeying God at all, or in any significant way, because you don't trust Him, right? Because you're not relying on Him. It's because you don't really believe in Him. That's what Hebrews is saying. And Hebrews is saying, look at these guys. They trusted in God. But these guys were really pretty weak, weren't they, in many ways? These guys were all sinners. I mean, you know, we could tell stories of the sins of all these people. So, you know, Abraham lied twice, didn't he? Moses committed murder. I mean, you know, when we talk about obedience, yes, they obeyed. Yes, they were godly in many ways. But they were also very flawed men, weren't they? Uh, so, so, you know, right? I'm, so I'm trying to strike that balance here. Do you hear that today? Obedience is necessary, but we're... But it's not perfect obedience, and sometimes the sins are pretty significant. Yeah, let's think, you know, you know, you know one of the people named here in the Hall of Faith, Samson. Samson. You know, you know the story of Samson. I mean, Samson's, Samson's an example of a person of faith? Did Samson persevere until the end? Samson, you know, Samson had a thing for, for women, right? And prostitutes even. That's pretty significant failing, isn't it? And uh, it didn't make his life happy, did it? It had consequences. You know, having your, having your eyes gouged out, that's not fun. <laughs> and so, you know, sin... Samson's not in hell, right? But sin, had con- sin made his life miserable. He thought it'd make him happy. Why do we sin? Because we think it'll make us happy. He thought it would make him happy. It didn't work out that way, did it? His sins made him miserable. That's what, that's what sin does. Sin brings what? Misery into our lives. That, that's, that's how sin works. But, but did Samson persevere? With all his failings? Yes, he did. And I love this. Here's what Judges chapter 16, verse 22 did. You know, you remember this, his power, he, he took a Nazarite vow, was in his hair. And what did Delilah do? She shaved off his hair. And then he had no strength. But the, the author tells us, Judges 16, verse 22, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Well, that's not a throwaway line, right? I tried to claim that as a promise for my own life. (laughs) It didn't work, you know? So, right, that's that's not the point of the story, right? If you're losing your hair, it's going to come back. No, there's no promise for, for those of us in that situation, right? But the narrator is telling us God has not forsaken him, right? 
God is still with him. At his lowest point in his life, what? Samson, Samson was still, God had not forsaken him, and Samson was still trusting in God. So when they have that big party, and they mock Samson, and they ridicule him, and they make him do things in front of them, whatever they did, to mock him and ridicule him, and Samson puts his hands on those pillars, right? If God's not with him, he can't do a thing. We already know that from the Delilah story, right? If God's not with him, there's, he can't do anything. But God is with him. And he dies, right? Bringing that building down. So, there it is, right? Samson persevered in the faith with all his faults, you know? With all the ups and downs in his life. So, was there obedience in Samson's life? Yes. Was it very remarkable obedience? No, not very remarkable, but it was there, right? There was obedience. He was, he was changed. Not, not as remarkably as he should have been. He experienced the consequences. I always think of, when I think of this, I always think of what C.S. Lewis says. Also, we need to take this into account. We always have to think, are people changed who belong to God? Yes, but people start at different places, don't they? People start at different places, depending partly on your own personality, your family background. All of that plays a role. Um, C.S. Lewis talks about this guy who's a Christian, and everybody, there's nobody like this in this church, I know this, but everybody's a little bit annoyed with him because he's super crabby, right? But Lewis says, but since he became a Christian, he's become a lot less crabby. (laughs) They don't see how far he's come, you know? They just see he's kind of a crabby guy. But Lewis says, but he's grown a lot less crabbiness than before. So we we don't want to judge superficially, right, what's going on in a person's life. Maybe that person, maybe that person with a really sunny and happy personality hasn't grown very much at all, right? God knows those things. Ultimately, we don't. So, uh, two other, uh, I want to tell you two other stories and then a couple verses and then, yeah, I keep talking. That's my problem, right? Um, But, um, so Jesus said, if you deny me, I will deny you. If you deny me, I will deny you. Peter denied Jesus three times. So is Peter going to hell? No. No, right? That's a, that's a very interesting story. No, Peter, Jesus restored Peter. Peter repented of those denials, didn't he? So I take it, so, you know, there's complexity. You know, we always have to keep looking, right? I take it, it means you have to fully and finally deny Jesus. Peter didn't do that, Right? There can be an initial denial of Jesus, like Peter did, and then a repentance. Yes, God forgives, doesn't he? I had a student who told me he was engaged to a girl. The girl broke it off, and he said to God, I hate you. And then he said to me, I'm damned. And I said, no, you're not. You, that, that was a sin. That was a horrible thing to say to God, I hate you. You know, he didn't say to the girl, he said it to God, I hate you. Uh, and I said, that was a horrible sin to say to God. But you know what? Our God forgives horrible sinners like us. <laughs> That's what we all are. No, 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 you've repented of that. You're forgiven. Peter was forgiven, wasn't he? 
but he denied Jesus. So when it says, if you deny me, I'll also deny you, we've got to mix this in, don't we? We've got to mix in that story of Peter so we're not superficial. So we don't just say, you're done. You denied Jesus. You're going to hell. No, 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 no. Not if you repent. Not if you say, I'm sorry. And Peter did, right? The other story is Thomas Cranmer. Do you know that name? Thomas Cranmer was the architect of the English Reformation. And, and Cranmer, um, you know, when the Protestants came in power, he, he uh, did much to transform the Church of England. But then Queen Mary, the Catholic, came back in power. Unbeknownst to Thomas, Mary had decided, no matter what, I'm going I'm to put him to death, right? But Thomas didn't know that. So he, Mary puts Thomas in prison, and she threatens him. And she says, I'll let you go if you sign a recantation, if you deny your teachings, if you deny the gospel. And Thomas is a coward. A lot like us, right? Who knows what we would have done in that situation? Any of us may have done the same thing. He signed the recantation to to spare his life. Little did he know. No, it wasn't going to work anyway. Mary had already decided, I'm going to kill him. But he signed it, right? Then Mary said, this is great. I'm going to bring him out in the church and read it. Well, that's a great PR move, right? I'm going to bring Thomas out, have him read, the, the, you know, the leader, one of the leaders at least, one of the prominent leaders of the English Reformation. I'm going to bring him out, have him read the recantation. But Thomas was a believer, and the Holy Spirit was working, right? And the Holy Spirit was working, and Thomas, Thomas repented of signing that recantation. So when he got up to read in the church, he recanted his recantation. Isn't that great? He said, no, 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 no. And then Mary burned him to death. And and the story is he put his hand that signed the recantation in the flame first, right? So, yes, if you deny Jesus, he'll deny you. But there's repentance, right? There's forgiveness. So that is very significant. One last thing I want to say right, that's important to mix in before uh, the Sunday service, all those who belong to God, all those who are truly Christians will never lose their salvation. I want to say that. Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus began the good work of causing you to believe, if you're a believer today, if you're a believer, he began that good work, he'll complete it. He promises to do that, doesn't he? So will we, if we're Christians, will we persevere to the end? We will. We will because he's promised to complete that good work. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Romans 8, 35. Shall tribulation, the pressures of life, shall distress, shall persecution, shall famine? Yeah, some Christians starve to death, right? Read history. It happens, right? Some Christians have starved to death. Famine nakedness, danger, or sword. Yeah, some Christians have been put to death, right? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. What's Paul saying there? Yes, these things happen to us. We're like sheep. We're put to death. Do you pray for believers around the world who are being persecuted right now? Remember to do that. We have brothers and sisters suffering today. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, including your free will. That's in part of creation, right? Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those who belong to God will never be separated from the love of Christ. No matter what happens, he lists all the terrible things that could happen, right? All the things that could separate you from God's love. He doesn't say bad things won't happen to you. There's no promise of that. But he's saying in those bad things, you won't, if you truly belong to God, you won't. You won't depart from them. John 10, 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Those who have eternal life will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Even yourself. Right? He holds us. He holds us. So, so what have I said today? Right? Obedience is a necessary is necessary for eternal life, but it's not perfect obedience. There's lots of ups and downs in our faith, and it's not the basis because those who persevere can fall even into significant sin, but we persevere to the end. People can even deny like Cranmer and Peter and still be saved because at the end of the day, they repent and believe. So, um, I think I'm done. Finally, yeah. All right. You guys can hear me now. Um, Very good, brother. Thank you. So we have about nine minutes for questions uh, at 10 o'clock. If you need to, uh, if this applies to you, if you have children in Sunday school, please go pick them up. Got it? Don't leave them. And then we'll have about 30 minutes for fellowship. Uh, Man, take that time to pray for each other, grab coffee, and then we'll come back at 1030. All right, questions. Questions right here. Mike. I bet I don't need that. You do need this, Mike, for recording. Sorry. In Matthew, in Matthew 12, starting in about verse 30, Jesus says, you can talk bad about me, I'm paraphrasing, of course, all day long, but you cannot blaspheme the Holy Spirit. In two verses, he repeats the same thing to make it very plain. Can you... First of all, let me say thank you. You have generated a lot of conversations. My wife and I have talked about little else than this since Friday night. Give me an example of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think we see it in that very passage. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is Jesus is casting out demons by the power of the Spirit And they say, that's Satan. That's Satan. So the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is you see the work of God and people say, that's of the devil. And I I think it's happening today, right? No believer can commit that sin, right? But unbelievers can look at Christians and say things like, now, I'm not saying... You know, I want to be careful. I'm not trying to pick out any particular person, right? Jesus knows who's committed that sin. I mean, who knows, finally. But, if, but I think we see examples of that if people see, you know, the work of God in Christians, and they say, you know what? Christians are evil. 
Christians are hateful. Christian, Christ, it's actually, they might not use the word demonic, but that's what they're saying, right? So Jesus is saying, somebody who says the work of the Spirit of God in Jesus is evil, that's the blasphemy against the Spirit. Yeah. More, more questions. Maybe somebody texted me a question just now. No. <laughs> we can have a longer break. Yeah. No, whatever. Um, well, the question I have is in regards to that. And I just wonder, you know, the Pharisees knew uh, by... The Pharisees knew um, by the examples that Jesus had shown that he did what he did by the power of God because they knew the Scriptures. They knew that you can't cast out Satan by the power of Satan. It doesn't work that way. So they knew that Jesus worked by the power of God. And yet they attributed that to the work of the devil. So the point, I I guess the question I'm, I'm saying here is, I understand how people can look sometimes at Christians and call them evil because, you know, the world has painted the picture that if you don't agree with me, you hate me. Yeah, yeah. Um, Can I say something now? I want to say, here's what I, this is the text I think the Pharisees used, Deuteronomy 13. This is a very interesting text. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, so they do, and they actually do a sign or wonder, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. I think the Pharisees appealed to that text and said, look, Deuteronomy says a person can arise and do signs and wonders, but actually God's testing us. He's not of God. Because there can be false prophets who do signs and wonders, and I think they said, that's what Jesus is. Jesus is actually a false prophet. He's telling us to go after other gods. He's, he's, a, he's heretical. So miracles alone, right? Deuteronomy 13 says a false prophet can do signs or wonders. And I think that's the text they appeal to. Yeah. Well, I was just curious because, uh, like I said, I mean, I, I think some people might have anger or resentment toward the God they say they don't believe in. Uh, purely because of the influence that society has. And I guess what I'm saying is, you know, it's like the guy that said, God, I hate you. I guess what I'm saying is it doesn't necessarily mean, if a person does what that, what that they do in ignorance, not really understanding the situation, does that automatically damn them? Does that automatically prevent them no. from ever being saved? Yeah, yeah, yes. I, and I totally agree. We don't... We don't, I'm just saying that could be an example, but I never try to guess who's committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. We have no idea. Some of them may have, some of them, yes, some of them may come to faith. I mean, honestly, if I were around in the first century and I was one of those early Christians, I'd say, who's blaspheming against the Holy Spirit? Definitely that guy named Paul. (laughs) He hates us. So he didn't. So, yeah, we don't know, we don't know who's done it. Some have, some have done it, some don't. God knows. The warning isn't there so we can figure out, oh, who's blasphemed against the Spirit. The warning is there to say it happens. 
that's, that, that it happens. Who those people are, we don't know. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. I, that, that's a good caution. Yeah. All right, Dave, back here. I want to thank you for what, what you have taught. <clears throat> and I have a question. Um, would you explain purgatory as opposed to what the scripture teaches us? Yeah, well, purgatory, purgatory, Catholics teach that there's a period, if you're a believer, there's, but you're not holy enough, there's a period after death in which your sins are slowly purged away. I mean, you can, you know, I mean, you can, that's Dante's Inferno, one of the, uh, section two is uh, all about purgatory. But of course, Protestants, and I hold this view as well, we say, but it's not in Scripture. There's, there is no category of purgatory in Scripture. So um, it, it became a tradition that Roman Catholics believe, but I don't think it's scriptural. I think those of us who are believers, we go to, to be in the presence of Christ immediately. Yeah. Okay. All right. Again, take this time, 30 minutes to fellowship. Ask a fellow believer how they're doing, how you can pray for them, and then stop and do it. Amen? Enjoy fellowship. Uh, I'm sure Dr. Tom would, wouldn't mind talking. You don't drink coffee, though, so I can bring you some tea. You got your water. Good. All right. Well, again, grab your kiddos. Make sure you're back here by 1030. We're going to start on time. Love you guys.